Life is day in black as night. No ego shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's light. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the only podcast you will ever need to be up to date with the ever-evolving, confusing, and challenging world of medical oncology. Today, I am joined once again by my my incredibly talented and charismatic co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. Mikey, how are you doing today, my good sir? I'm very good, Josh. Much better to have heard your amazing rendition of uh, the Green Lantern uh, mantra. We're probably the only oncological podcast that can open one of our episodes with uh, such a unique and... Unique and inspiring, uh, we'll say. Unique and in- inspiring uh, um, opening. It gets better, though. And for, ladies and gentlemen, just to clarify why did we care about this, the, the optimal word in that opening line is brightness, and we will get to that much later in this <laughs> talk. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to link it back to our topic today. It's the third word, Michael. You should have realised that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Today's episode is special, and you may be asking yourself why. Our specialty symbolizes hope and continues to challenge the status quo. We never sit still and push the boundaries of medicine and our healthcare system. Oncology defines optimism. It can even bring second chances to our patients, their families, and the wider and their wider social circle. Michael, some heroes don't wear capes. And I believe this is true for those who dedicate their lives with such creativity, note the word creativity, and vivaciousness to this worthy cause. I'm I'm specifically giving a shout out to all those researchers, trial coordinators, clinicians, nurses, administrative staff, and of course, allied health staff, including pharmacists. Without further ado, Michael, who has been very kind to give me the introduction once again, has kindly prepared an educational intro and will shine some light onto our topic of the day, new adjuvant and adjuvant therapy in the context of triple negative breast cancer. Some might say, Josh, that this is a keynote address. That works too. uh, Of the topic, yeah. (laughs) Amazing. How did I go? Uh, You continue to amaze me, I must say. Thank you. This is Uh, why I love it. the lengths that you will go to uh, make a, shall we say, interesting pun on our topic and the studies that we're talking about in any given episode. The terrible dad jokes are getting worse. Absolutely. They're definitely degrading as we go on. <laughs> Amazing. Do you want to actually teach someone something rather than me? Just yeah, I, th- I think we should. Cool. I think we should because... Uh, this time, a couple of episodes ago, we had already taught our audience that uh, dinosaurs didn't get cancer as frequently as humans, so we're, we're behind on schedule here. Yeah. So, so look, our topic today, in case you didn't uh, pass it from, from Josh's inspiring, uh, if slightly meandering, introduction is triple negative breast cancer, specifically early triple negative breast cancer. And breast cancer for an, oncolo- uh, an oncology podcast like us is really the gift that keeps on giving it. There is so much research, so many permutations and combinations with which one could treat uh, a case of uh, breast cancer. And so triple negative breast cancer is just a, a small slice of that particular pie. How small, you might ask? Well, it accounts for about 15% of all breast cancer patients. Uh, so a relatively small, but nonetheless very significant proportion. Uh, 
As the name implies, triple negative breast cancer refers to cancers that lack expression of the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the HER2 uh, epidermal receptor as well. Triple negative breast cancers tend to behave more aggressively than other types of breast cancer. They tend to uh, present with symptoms as opposed to uh, being found incidentally on screening. Breast cancers tend to behave more aggressively than other types of breast cancer. They are more frequently diagnosed uh, as women presenting uh, to medical practitioners with a rapidly growing mass as opposed to being found incidentally on screening. And part of this uh, cornucopia of badness, some might say, is these are also the cancers that tend to uh, be diagnosed in women less than 40 years of age. Now, we're not saying that if you have a woman with breast cancer uh, who is 35 or 25, uh, they are definitely going to have triple negative breast cancer, but it is definitely uh, a more frequent uh it is definitely a cancer that affects women in their younger phases rather than older women. And Josh, I know that you uh, feel the same about this. You have these patients that really stick in your mind. And for breast cancer, to me, it's always, and I can think of a few off the top of my head, it's always the very young women with really nasty breast cancer. It's almost always triple negative And frequently if they present uh, de novo metastatic or they recur after treatment with early breast cancer, they do really poorly because we don't have the quote-unquote luxury of targets in the uh, ER or PR positive or HER2 positive space. It's a pretty hard space, I think. You're right, Mikey, because they're so young and no comorbidities and they've just got this shockingly aggressive cancer that... As oncologists, we've only got chemo and maybe going back 20 years, that's that was fine because that's what everyone got. It was the standard. You, know, you tried, you either survived or you didn't. These times we have so many options for so many other malignancies that we want. We want more. We want something to be able to give these guys a second chance. Absolutely. And I, I know that uh, you have those heart sink patients and I think that they very frequently fall into this into this cohort, young women, triple negative breast cancer, who by rights should have a lot of life yet to live. And yet, uh, because of this lack of uh, effective treatments, it is frequently shortened. So there aren't any targeted therapies, um, although recently we've had developments with immunotherapy and in the metastatic setting, TROP2 inhibitors such as um, sasituzumab govotecan. Um, which I'm sure we'll do a, a study on the ascent trial down the road. But these are still nowhere near as effective as your aromatase inhibitors plus CDK4-6 or your trastuzumab deruxtecans or your TDM1s or pertuzumabs and trastuzumabs. There is really both a dearth of number, some might say of quality and of quantity in terms of therapeutic options. The other thing to mention with triple negative breast cancers is that a lot of publications, and up to date is the one that uh, springs to mind, uh, define triple negative as cancers with less than 1% expression of ER and PR and negative immunohistochemistry or a negative FISH for HER2 uh, as a definition of HER2 positivity. As we know, this is not a hard and fast definition for a couple of reasons. Uh, in terms of the ER and PR expression, 
that's uh, obviously expressed as a percentage and partially uh, expresses the likelihood of the cancer to respond to anti-hormonal therapy. But the we really don't slave to, but we really don't adhere slavishly to this less than one percent expression. Many of our listeners who have been practicing for a little while would have doubtless heard the expression of effectively triple negative, where there is so little uh, ER and PR expression, there's no HER2 expression, uh, that we effectively treat them as triple negative because we know that potentially treating them with an AI and CDK4-6, even though it might appear the best treatment on paper, for these patients is very unlikely to work. On the flip side is with the advent of TDXD and the Destiny Breast Study, there are there is an increasingly small number of people who are defined as purely HER2 negative. So we are in Australia, we no doubt in the near future will get access to um, TDXD in the HER2 low space, uh, and uh, doubtless in in the other countries that's already. Uh, available, um, but there are there there is a shrinking uh, number of patients who are definitively HER2 zero and thus not uh, suitable for those sorts of treatments such as TDXD. Mikey, I might take you back a step. You mentioned some amazing points in your introduction. I know you haven't finished, but when you were talking about effectively triple negative, for our amazing listeners out there. Can you tell them what percentage they're looking at for estrogen and progesterone? So progesterone is very frequently uh, completely negative, um, and our listeners will doubtless heard of luminal A and luminal B. We are getting a bit off topic, but Sorry. that's the nature of this podcast. And Josh. Um, it's the nature of both Josh and this podcast, and Josh is more than half of this podcast, so naturally they're linked together. Oh, stop. Um, <laughs> I had to... I had to um, not by the hand that feeds me. Um, so, I mean, it is very much a spectrum. The less uh, percentage of expression that you have of ER and PR, the less likely it is that uh, um, uh, that a patient will respond to anti-hormonal therapy. Now, by this definition of less than 1%, that would actually, at least in my experience, only account for a small minority of breast cancer cases because there are very few that have effectively absolute zero estrogen and progesterone. You're going to get people with sort of 2 or 3% um, uh, estrogen, maybe 0 or 2% progesterone. Um, there's not really, as far as I'm aware, a hard and fast uh, number at which you would call, some, call a cancer effectively triple negative. Obviously, if it's a single-digit expression, you're probably going to uh, call that... Uh, effectively triple negative but there's no real point as far as i'm aware and josh please correct me if you have uh, alternative experience there's no hard and fast percentage at which you would favor uh, a chemotherapy over an ai and cdk46 barring of course when it's bleedingly obvious such as when it's three percent is that your experience yeah look you're right i just i always thought when estrogen was less than 10 percent that was sort of the cutoff. Um, I, I could be wrong. I, I know luminal B, so when we're talking about the luminal type breast cancers, luminal B, you'd have an ENPR sort of less than 20%, and you'd have a KI67 of greater than 
chaos x7 being that reproductive marker and the higher that is the more the aggressive the type of cancer i or i th- always thought it was 10 percent, but you know i i don't have the stats in front of me to 100 percent define it and i think this is the case this is a phenomenon that is unique in oncology really to breast cancer is that there does seem to be a lot more art to it now i agree with you that less than 10 percent, anything less than 10 percent, you're probably not going to waste your time with an ai um, and cdk46 but in the areas above that it does get a little bit murky and i think it it really does depend on the oncologist and on the patient in front of them as to what they would reach for um uh, and and that obviously comes down to experience yeah so i've got an article here just from 2022 looking at he's live googling ladies and live googling guys the whole time as we follow this car chase um so triple negative they've said is when er and pr is less than one percent i mean i guess i guess the real question is do different institutions have different levels i'm I'm not 100 percent sure but that's just what they've sort of said here i did read um when I was preparing for this episode, that the the percentage expression of ER and PR was actually originally developed to predict a patient's response or likelihood of response to hormonal therapy, mm. which is probably a good way of, of thinking about it. Um, but of course, again, patient factors come into it. If you've got an elderly lady or gentleman um, in front of you and you really don't want to give them chemotherapy, maybe, and again, we're straying into the metastatic setting here, but they maybe they have high burden of liver metastases. They have a little bit of um, estrogen and progesterone expression. Maybe you set the ceiling at an AI and CDK46 and say that if it doesn't work, we're not going to be able to give chemotherapy so again the patient in front of you really does play into it as well there was a 200 sorry 2015 st gallons consensus that reported that er expression values between one and nine percent should be considered equivocal and that endocrine therapy alone in the absence of chemotherapy should not be considered a reliable adjuvant treatment for these patients so that's something really interesting to sort of reflect on there continues to be ambiguity regarding the clinically relevant ER threshold for endocrine therapy benefit. As a result, most clinician clinical trials in triple negative breast cancer space exclude patients with low ER expression. Another thing to talk about is just the 2020 ASCO update. So that's the American Society of Clinical Oncology introduced a new re- 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 reporting category of ER low positive, which was 1% to 10% that there's limited data to overall benefit. So it's, as Michael said, it's an art and there's no right answer in this setting. It's difficult. But I I guess the main thing is if you're new to this whole space, don't think that uh, you can't, if you have one or 2% ER and PR expression or um, a low HER2 expression, don't think that that does not effectively constitute a triple negative there is a little bit of uh, a little bit of gray around these definitions but let's get back to let's drag it back to the topic of our conversation today um in terms of early triple negative breast cancer um much like her2 positive breast cancer and we've done an episode on this in the past and obviously if you haven't listened to that one yet after this one 
keep those headphones in, keep those AirPods in and go right on to HER2 positive because the uh, early treatment, uh, the treatment of early disease and the triple negative in the HER2 space is very, very similar. Uh, obviously, the only difference being you have trastuzumab and anti-HER2 uh, agents in the HER2 positive space for obvious reasons. But neoadjuvant chemotherapy remains the optimal treatment. It is recommended in patients uh, with cancers greater than 0.5 centimeters or with node positivity regardless of tumor size. And that gives a sense of how aggressive these tumors can be in that you really don't need a lot of cancer uh, to put you at a high risk of, um, of recurrence and obviously disaster down the road. Uh, as with as is the case with HER2 positive disease, the aim is a pathological complete response, um, which is associated with improvement in disease-free survival compared to patients who did not have a pathological dis- uh, complete response or residual disease. In the triple negative setting, much like the HER2 setting again, it also d- helps determine the need for adjuvant treatment, which is uh, one of the three studies we'll be discussing today. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to that neoadjuvant question. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to that neoadjuvant question. And Josh, why don't you tell us about two neoadjuvant studies, one in obviously more detail than the other, uh, in this neoadjuvant space, that is Brightness and Keynote 522. Thanks so much, Mikey, for the incredible introduction. I will be talking to you in detail today about the brightness trial as per the introduction to our podcast, just in case you're wondering where that came from. Authored by the Green Lantern Brigade or whatever they're called. Taking it away from uh, American syndicated comics. Uh, Let's talk about brightness. This is a complex trial. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the background and then a little bit about the arms. And Michael, I think we should take it slow because I've I've read this multiple times over the last three years and I still have to read through it. The background... I think think with uh, respect to the authors, uh, the word messy can be used. um, And this is sort of retrospective, I guess. But uh, with the way that we apply brightness, as Josh will... Uh, make very very clear with a lantern some might say um but it, uh, <laughs> but, but it but it it can be very messy and confusing because the way we actually use brightness is not the original intention of the study no not at all and that's just the thing with studies you find things which you didn't realize you'd find and so be it Although the background is, although there have been several several randomized trials prior to this publication, which was 2020, in patients with triple negative breast cancer that had shown the additional carboplatin with or without a PARP inhibitor, which was spoken about previously. These are poly ADP ribose polymerase inhibitors, which is used to essentially help break double-stranded DNA so the body then kills the broken cancer cells as a very sort of basic summary. Um, To neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the question is, does it increase the likelihood of achieving a pathological complete response? As Michael said, that's our goal in neoadjuvant therapy. Kill all the cancer cells, take it out, you're less likely going to have a recurrence. So this brightness trial was actually designed very differently to the outcome, but it was designed to assess the addition of a PARP inhibitor, veliparib. Um, Veliparib? Veliparib. 
We'll go Veliparib. 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 So if you don't remember, try and say that five times fast. If you, remember, if you remember nothing, remember the name Veliparib. Actually, don't. It's not the important part of this trial. Yeah, don't do not do that. Thanks. Yeah, Veliparib plus carboplatin or carboplatin alone to stand near adjuvant chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancer. Even that introductory line, Michael, I'm pretty sure was if we're, if we're really breaking it down. So I actually have the study design here with me. And... They had multiple arms. They had three arms in this particular trial. Okay. The first arm was, so it was a randomized trial. It was two to one to one, meaning out of every four patients that were randomized, two would go into the, I guess, the intervention arm they really wanted to prove, which was the paclitaxel, the carboplatin, and the viliparib. Viliparib being the, the question of choice. That was part one. The second arm was paclitaxel plus carbo plus aveliparib placebo, arm two. And the third arm was paclitaxel plus carboplatin placebo plus aveliparib placebo. So essentially a single neoadjuvant agent. That was then followed by doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, very common breast cancer chemotherapies, backbone of literally all of them. Then two to eight weeks after that, they underwent surgery. Of course, when anyone has new adjuvant treatment, you don't want to wait too long before having surgery because then it's essentially a useless thing. You know, if you wait six months to have surgery, it's likely the cancer is going to come back with the primary endpoint being the pathological complete response. The secondary endpoint being the event-free survival, the overall survival and the safety. You know, they were, they were, it's a bad cancer when the secondary endpoint is an overall survival. Yes, definitely. It's not something you see in breast cancer very often. Yeah. So I think to summarize, you had the intervention arm and you had really two control arms. Is that a nice way to put it, Michael? Yeah. I think so. I but, think that's as, as clear as we're going to get. I know. We don't, want to, we don't want the podcast to go for six hours talking purely about the, 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 the structure of the trial. But <laughs> Yeah, we don't, we don't need any help to drag this thing out. No, the, the, <laughs> we don't. The inclusion criteria of females over the age of 18, they had to have histologically confirmed invasive cancer, stage 2 or stage 3, triple negative, good performance status, candidates for potential curative surgery, and documented BRCA mutation status. We've talked about this previously. People who have BRCA mutations, much higher risk of triple negative breast cancer and much more common to the younger population as well. Yes, Michael. How, uh, I guess my question, Josh, is what is the rate of uh, BRCA positivity in the triple negative space? I thought it was 20%. Yeah, absolutely 20%. That was one thing I didn't include in my um, in my spiel at the top. Uh, is that if you have a triple negative uh, cancer, I think in Australia um, that is pretty much an automatic uh, gateway to bracket, uh, an automatic gateway to both a genetics referral and a bracket test is if you're under the age of 40 or 45 and you have triple negative breast cancer. That's it. Or if you have a super strong family history and you're slightly older than 45. Again, the art, the art of medicine comes in here a lot. The, the art of the deal with chemotherapy. That's it. And exclusion criteria, the standard stuff, previous or concurrent cancers, previous anti-cancer treatment, on ovarian hormone replacement therapy. They're the three ones. Patient characteristics, 
predominantly about half of every cohort was under the age of 50 and half were over the age of 50. Widespread of where they were recruited from, but predominantly Europe and North America. And interestingly, oh, look, it's not too bad. About 15% of each cohort had a deleterious mutation that was BRCA. So not as high as what we've quoted, but again, you know, this is a, a study, you know, it's a phase three study. Looking at the tumor type, predominantly they were T2 um, staging and about 40% in every arm had lymph node involvement. And I think that's really it if you, if to talk about the incredible diversity of sort of who they collected. Moving on to what is really the crux of this study is the outcomes. And I feel I'm dragging this out. Um, but the primary endpoint was pathological complete response, which we meant, mentioned. And what they found was carboplatin with or without filiparib significantly improved pathological complete response compared to standard neoadjuvant chemo alone. So that was 53 and 58% respectively versus 31%. Right? So what they found is that Michael, I, I might ask you just because this is one of those shots. What what does that mean? That one line I just said. Well, I think the key is uh, that carboplatin with or without valiparib. So uh, we might have said it's on the show before, but I've had carboplatin uh, be described as a poor man's pop inhibitor. So it works in a very similar way in terms of uh, instituting double-stranded DNA um, breaks. It's one of the ways it works anyway. Um but basically what it means is uh, you can add all of the PARP inhibitor you want. You're probably not going to have a significant benefit adding PARP inhibitor on top of carboplatin because they work in a similar way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, so carboplatin, good. PARP inhibitor, bad. In this, in this context. In this context, very good. Um, the finding of the benefit with the addition of the carboplatin to the neoadjuvant therapy has already been supported by two other trials, right? So this is just reaffirming realistically, the CALGB4063 alliance trial and the GPAR6 toe, which we can put the links in the description at the end of this trial, which also showed improvement in pathological complete response. But the thing is, the impact of neoadjuvant carboplatin on long-term outcomes had remained unclear, right? But this is, so this is where we're lucky because we're doing a, a podcast many years down the track from when this was published. And... This is the rate. So here they reported a long-term event-free survival, long-term overall survival, and the rate of secondary malignancies at the four-year post-surgery, right? So at the four-year, if you look at the different arms, at the three-year mark, arm B, so arm A was 54%, and then I think arm B and arm C was 60%, which already shows a benefit of the carboplatin, not so much the valaparib. Right. And they've done a weird thing overall survival with sequential therapy, looking at the arms. But, you know, the one essentially you said if they moved on to weird, like if you Nevo, I was looking at Encobini in the triple negative rest space. I didn't know there was any research with that, but that seems to be the thing. Um, they also looked at pathological complete response as sort of a sub analysis, which they did. And what they found was that there were 309 patients. Um, that had some and they had sort of a pathological complete response and 325 who did not. 
and they found that there was a 74% reduction in the risk of an event compared to those that did not have a pathological complete response. So, at, at, but the interesting thing is, and maybe it's because it's only four and a half years, maybe because they've moved on to another line of therapy, but after median follow-up of four and a half years, no significant difference had been found in overall survival between those that had a complete pathological response and those that did not. I think that's just something to really talk about, Michael. And I thought, did you have any, it's weird, right? Because you think, you know, complete pathological response, all of our data is showing this, whether this is premature, it's only four and a half years. Yes, triple negative in the metastatic setting, it's difficult, but this is the neoadjuvant setting, everyone. So this isn't, you know, they, they don't have, they're not riddled with cancer. They've got a risk of it coming back much higher than let's say the hormone receptor positive cohort, but this is the neoadjuvant. So finding an overall survival difference is going to be difficult. The story of this whole PCR equals improved outcomes is a fascinating one as well, because I think initially when the idea was uh, proposed, a lot of people said, oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't have um, pathological complete response rate as a, as a convenient uh, surrogate. There's no evidence for it. And then the evidence started to come out. But correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, I believe the evidence of a benefit with PCR is actually for disease-free survival as opposed to overall survival. And as we know, these sort of recurrence or progression uh, endpoints don't necessarily correlate with a benefit with overall survival. And so it's almost come, and I think more and more people are cottoning onto this, that yeah, pathological complete response is great. It's definitely what we should aim for because just conceptually it makes sense that people with a PCR would do better but I I think that there is a it's sort of coming around where people are saying oh well PCR is is no longer the be-all and end-all and if you don't have one you're not doomed and if you do have a PCR you're not sort of saved at uh, 100% of the time I think so and it, you're right it comes down to these are, these are nuanced questions with people who are probably going to have a good overall survival in the, the majority of patients that finding that statistical difference is going to be like a needle from a haystack. And the, although you said, you know, event-free survival, Michael, or, you know, disease-free survival, if I was a 38-year-old lady and I had a disease-free survival of, let's say, 15 years, and that was what the pathological complete response referred to. I'm, I'm going to go for that and I'm going to go for it hard, even if... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm definitely not saying it's, it's it, you know, we shouldn't bother with, um, with uh, PCR because it's still a very important biomarker. Um, but I think the, it, it's interesting how it went from absolutely not, this is sort of trash science. There's not, there's no reason to um, think that, you know, you're just using this as a, as a convenient endpoint so you don't have to follow up people uh, for years and years for your trial to, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. You know, we can we can predict that people will be cured with a pathological complete response. And now it's sort of coming back down a little bit and we're having a little bit more of a nuanced conversation with patients with regards to that. But definitely still something that you should go for. The other thing as well is that um, triple negative breast cancer doesn't follow the same, I guess, recurrence pattern as ERPR positive breast cancer. So you might be aware that patients with ERPR positive breast cancer, they have two major peaks and I guess one sort of 
plateau really of recurrence rates they have uh, a peak at sort of the two to three year mark post-surgery they have a peak at the seven to eight year mark and then they have these we have these occasional patients who have very very late recurrences of 10 15 20 years after their surgery triple negative breast cancer really doesn't express that same phenomenon uh, we're not seeing those same sort of patients have recurrences 10 15 years down the track so I guess in the short term coming back to you know the the brightness follow-up being at four years in the short term you know the if, if you are going to have a recurrence with triple negative breast cancer it's going to it's going to be awful but it's also probably going to be fairly quick so that's the flip side to the whole is four years too early question because it at the end of the day it actually might not be yeah it might not be it's just difficult i think when you're sitting there and you you just can't define it that way you can't define it as the benefit um but that doesn't stop us from giving carboplatin i mean it is a very common particularly in young in young women again young women who have like i said at the top 30 40 50 years of of life expectancy you're definitely going to hit them with everything you can um, yep. in order to try and maximize their outcomes and i i'm i'm seeing carboplatin added to young women regardless of their BRCA status in the triple negative space the triple negative neoadjuvant space I should say um, because there is an association with an increased pathological complete response and I guess five ten years from now we'll probably have a much more definitive answer as to what that actually means but at this point it's it's the available evidence is that it's worth going to it just might not mean that uh, all is fine and dandy that's it right i think it's you can yes you're right and with event-free survival when they looked at the stratified analysis and the four and a half year follow-up surprisingly paclitaxel as a single agent in the neoadjuvant sphere didn't do too well whereas pacli plus carbo definitely saw a statistically significant benefit of the hazard ratio of 0.57 so that's pretty good whereas the pacli plus carbo yeah, no, right. Um, plus Valaparib versus Pakli plus Carbo, there was no difference. Realistically, the hazard ratio was 1.12. It wasn't statistically significant. And so in that case, we can really realistically just say, drop the Valaparib. It's just going to add some toxicities. Nobody wants toxicities if you can avoid it. And that's really it. When we look at toxicities, oh, that was a great segue. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, I love that segue, Josh. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, the common stuff that we always see were nausea, constipation, diarrhea in the GI sort of sphere. When we look at that and compare it to the, this is versus the Velapro placebo, realistically, the, the levels are pretty similar. So it shows Velapro is a very well tolerated drug overall. When we look at neutropenia, anemia, and leukopenia, they were, again, pretty pretty similar pretty stock standard similar i think uh overall so Vlapro doesn't really cause that that much slightly more proof of neuropathy in the Vlapro intervention arm and then yeah look there really wasn't a huge number of toxicities from the Vlapro that's what the summary of rather than going through 45 different toxicities well i guess was there any documentation because we know that a laparib can cause uh I, I believe i labeled it bone marrow shenanigans in a previous episode um with aml and fibro uh dysplasias and 
Uh, that's not the word for it, but... Um, uh, Acute myeloid leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and other secondary primary malignancies. Thank you for, com- thank you for coming to my rescue there, Josh. Was there I- any data on that in this, in this one? Um, they were uncommon and their frequency did not significantly differ amongst the arms. I actually had that. I was almost waiting for you to say something. Um, although, and they did, they did comment, although the highest rates of hematological toxicities with the addition of carbo with or without filaparib, these adverse events did not compromise either treatment delivery, benefits of carbo, or the primary endpoint of pathological complete response. Carboplatin as a general is more myelosuppressive than cisplatin. Would you agree with me, Mikey? Yep, and oxaliplatin. Yeah, and you just have to monitor it. And you know what? You give some peg for Graston to these guys. I'm assuming they would get it in the near adjuvant space. And then you're fine and dandy, and you go along, you get your treatment, you have your breast conserving therapy, and you live out your life, and it's great. And I guess the other thing is that these people on chemotherapy are going to be monitored anyway, even if they were just getting paclitaxel. That's so exactly it. Your approach is not really going to change. No. But that, that's really the summary. It's an interesting talk, and I think it's, a, it's it brought some interesting points about trial decisions, trial aims. They obviously didn't get what they want because their aim was 100% velaparib to see whether it worked. They wanted it to work. It's another indication to treat someone. It also shows that it is nice when we get another addition of another drug. I know it's carbo, and I know it's an old drug, but the fact that this works in a triple negative breast space is fantastic, and that's what we want. So I guess, Josh, putting this in the clinical context, yes. um, where does carbo slot in to the neoadjuvant chemotherapy space? What do you stick it with? Do you do, because uh, you, you, for, for example, you never do docetaxel and cyclophosphamide TC in the neoadjuvant setting because if you're going to give chemo, you may as well go the full double barrel and give them uh, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, and then taxol. But where does the carboplatin fit into that? Do you give it with the AC? Do you give it with the taxol? Do you give it before? Do you give it after? Where does it, where does it sit? Oh, I've seen it given before um, and with the taxol, although I've also seen um, AC given first and then the carbo and the taxol. So I've seen different people sort of do different things. And when I asked them about the indication, they, they didn't really give it to me. Most recently, I've seen the paclitaxel and the carboplatin given first as some more of a common rule, followed by the dose-dense um, cyclophosphamide and the doxorubicin. Michael, what about yours? Because we work at different institutions, so I'd love to hear your experience. Yeah, this whole idea of a reverse protocol chemotherapy. So that's the uh, carboplatin and the paclitaxel first. So the paclitaxel every week, the carboplatin every three weeks, so every three three dose, you get a, a nasty surprise, some might say. Um, I, I do vaguely remember an oncologist telling me that it, it is related to the fact that carboplatin is good to get in early uh, to combat specifically the triple negative uh, aspect of the, of the cancer. Uh, but again, this comes back to what we've been saying all episode about the artistry of the treatment of breast cancer is that there is really no hard and fast rule. Um, and I've just like you, Josh, I've seen people do it one way. I've seen people do it the other way um, with more conventional sequencing, AC first, then Taxol and Carboplatin second. Um, I'm sure there are subtleties that we're not picking up on this. Um, but uh, I've 
that's a very long-winded way of saying I've seen it both ways. Cool. So we, in summary, we're both saying it both ways. Sorry to the podcast listeners. I think you can do either. And I think it depends on the patient, their preference, what their toxicity threshold is and what they're going to be able to manage. You need to figure out what's the best benefit in the neoadjuvant sphere and what do you really want to give. I think that's a really good summary. Great. Moving on. And yeah, this, this is a this is a bit of a dense topic, but I'm going to briefly this is the this is my keynote section. I'm the keynote speaker for this uh, episode. Um, Michael is a keynote speaker for the last fifteen, but I'll I'll take this one. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, we're going to talk about the keynote trial. Michael, do you know what the keynote number is? It's five two two. Five hundred and twenty two. I think it's five hundred twenty two. Now the only reason I brought that up is they've now moved to adding letters into keynotes, and they've completely changed the nomenclature because it's just gotten so many trials. Um, which is sad because, you know, it's nice to know 900 different odd keynotes. But let's get to the point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. They've followed the, uh, followed the lead of the Checkmate trials um, where they're just, yeah, incomprehensible combinations of numbers and letters. Yeah, that's it. So it's always good to remember. But this, so the previous trials with immunotherapy have shown promising anti-tumor activity and an acceptable safety profile um, associated with pembrolizumab in patients with early triple negative breast cancer, where, whether the addition of Pembro to neoadjuvant chemotherapy would significantly increase the percentage of patients with early triple negative breast cancer who had a pathological complete response was not known at this point. So this is the question they want to know. If you give Pembro in the neoadjuvant sphere with the good chemo included in the carbo, does it add to the outcomes? I'm on the edge of my seat, Josh. I can tell. I can see you there, Michael. In this, so as a phase three, randomly assigned two to one, previously untreated stage two or stage three, who received four cycles of Pembro, 200 milligrams, which is very standard dosing every three weeks, plus the Packley and Carbo. So that's how they've done it. We're linking the trials, remember. So the Packley and the Carbo were given first. Um, all, and then all they were given a placebo with the chemotherapy. And then they were given the doxorubicin and the cyclophosphamide. Then they had the definitive surgery and then the patient would receive adjuvant Pembro or placebo every three weeks for up to nine cycles. You might ask yourself why. It's because they don't know how much Pembro. Why, Josh? Why? They don't know how much Pembro to give. And honestly, the more Pembro you give, the better it is for the company. But also, like melanoma, two years. We don't know if that's really enough for most people. That's how the trial was designed, right? With the primary endpoint of this study being the pathological complete response at the time of definitive surgery and event-free survival in the attention-to-treat population. In the first interim analysis, there were 602 patients. The percentage of patients with pathological complete response was 64.8% in the Pembro arm and 51.2% in the placebo arm. The difference, 13.6% with a p-value of 0.001. So yeah, they've got their statistical significance there. After a median follow-up... Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. After a median follow-up of a year and a bit, so 15.5 months, ranging up to 25 months, 58 patients, or 7.4%, and 46 patients, or 11% in the placebo arm, had disease progression, 
that precluded definitive surgery. So what, what we're showing is that's how aggressive this cancer is, right? 11.8, over 10% of the patients in the standard arm did not get to definitive surgery because of disease progression. And the thing Which is, is a scary thought. Yeah, had local or distant recurrence or a second primary tumor. And, you know, the hazard ratio is 0.63. But that, what that shows is that we've managed, you know, 100 women, we've managed four or five of those 100 women and we have stopped from progressing. And they got to their definitive surgery, which I'm t- I'm ticking that box as Josh approves this message. Um, across, <laughs> across all treatment phases. Senator, Senator Josh approves this message. Senator Josh, Senator Oncologist Josh. Across all the treatment phases, the incidence of treatment-related adverse events of grade three or higher was 78% in the Pembro arm and 73% in the placebo arm. Look, you know, death in three patients and one patient respectively across those arms. I haven't gone into those details. They're pretty similar toxicity profiles. Um, but what we found to summarize this point, because I don't want to yak all night long or all day long, depending when you're listening to this, is pathological complete response was better in the Pembro arm um, than those just received the standard chemo. And that is Keynote 522 in five minutes or less. Well done. Thank you. Michael, um, I know you're the creative one out of the two of us. And, you know, Michael, for those that didn't know, is an accomplished singer. Um, His favorite musicals or, I guess, players include Les Mis. He was uh, in it in high school. Um, We should get him to sing it on the podcast one day. But because he's so creative, we've given him... Absolutely no one wants to hear that, Josh. I do. It's great. Um, Create X. Can you tell us about this trial, Mikey? Yeah, well, Josh, you've provided a lot of uh, detail on what we do before surgery. Um, Obviously, the addition of carboplatin is becoming increasingly uh, used in the uh, triple negative space. There's lots of excitement about immunotherapy. There's a lot of questions about uh, uh, where it slots in and who we use it for. Uh, But neither of those studies that you so expertly summarized answer the question about what happens after. Uh, what do we do um, after the surgery? And CREATE-X is one of several conflicting studies, and we'll talk about the conflicting evidence in a moment, that examines the use of adjuvant capecitabine in patients who are post their surgery. So they've had their neoadjuvant treatment. This predated brightness. It certainly predated keynote. So we are talking about standard uh uh, AC plus Taxol. No fancy carboplatin or immunotherapy to be found here. Would you consider it the um, dark times? The dark ages. Well, no, I would consider the uh, use of single agent uh, uh, methotrexate in this space to be the dark ages. Yeah, just in reference to the brightness trial, just bringing it back again so you remember the name of the trial, everyone. Brightness, go for it. <laughs> I think they've got it, Josh, because you've said it a bunch of times. Um... So the reason people use capecitabine, obviously, uh, there are no targeted, um, sorry, there are no targets to uh, exploit in the triple negative space. Capecitabine is an oral medication. It's a prodrug of five fluorouracil and carries the same sort of toxicity profile um, as five uh, FU, which is commonly used in the GI space. Um, so CREATE-X is an Asian study, and I don't say that sort of flippantly, that is definitely a consideration that we'll come back to in a moment, that examined uh, capecitabine in the adjuvant 
space. Now, I didn't say triple negative space because this uh, uh, study looked exclusively at people who were HER2 negative. So it did include people that were ERPR positive. And you're probably asking, why the hell are we talking about this in a triple negative space? Patience, young grasshopper, the answer will become clear. So the inclusion criteria were um, HER2 negative breast cancer, stage 1 to 3B, with an age uh, range of 20 to 74 years. Uh, patients had to have residual disease in either the primary or the nodes after neoadjuvant anthracycline or taxane-based chemo. And what this means, you know, we've been harping on about pathological complete response and what that means for the better part of an hour now, but this is the flip side. This is patients who don't have a pathological complete response. And I think no matter what you think about PCRs, there is a decent body of evidence that not having a PCR, aka having a cancer that is resistant to chemotherapy and quite aggressive chemotherapy at that, is a poor prognostic sign. Even if you've taken it out, there is a high risk of residual disease and there's a high risk of relapse. So Createx is looking at a bad bunch. You're, you're right. It's like, Speaking... the, it's like the bad bunch. That, that's a good acronym. But I think the way I always see it is that if... If the, tre- if the cancer was really responsive to treatment, you just think that it would all die. That, that's the summary, right? And the way I, fe- I, I think about it is that if cancer cells survive chemotherapy, they've obviously got inherent, res- they don't obviously, but they do have inherently re- inherent resistant mechanisms to chemo, which means giving any subsequent chemo will probably going is going to end up being another challenge. So while yes, Michael's 100% right in saying, although we can't infer overall survival and complete pathological response is better. It's really a warning sign when you don't get a complete pathological response, whether that's the HER2 setting, the triple negative setting, whichever cancer it is, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to be difficult to control. Absolutely. I mean, the simile I use when I'm speaking to medical students or junior doctors on my team is you think about it like antibiotics and multi-resistant bacteria. If you give an uh, antibiotic to someone with an infection and it doesn't kill the infection, then you've got to assume that that the bacteria is resistant to that antibiotic. And obviously these days that can sometimes confer multi-resistance. So it's a similar sort of concept, I guess. As we mentioned, CreateX was focusing on capecitabine. Now the dose, this is where the uh, the population factor comes into, uh, comes into account. The dose was 1250 milligrams per square meter twice a day on days 1 to 14 over 21 day cycle. Initially, the protocol stated that um, the treatment was going to be continued for six cycles, uh, but after they sort of came towards the conclusion of the six cycles and did an interim safety analysis, the recommendation was that that be expanded to eight cycles. Now, 1,250 milligrams per square meter of capecitabine is a huge dose. I think I can count on one hand the number of patients that I have uh, put on this dose of capecitabine who have been able to tolerate it properly. However, because this is an Asian study, and don't ask me to go into any detail about that, but apparently people of Asian descent can tolerate higher doses of, of capecitabine. Um, whether that's a metabolic component, they just break it down better, or they are inherently resistant to the, um, the toxin buildup causing side effects. I don't know. But the there is a, a 
body of clinical experience and clinical evidence that using 1250 milligrams per meter squared in a non-Asian population usually uh, ends in toxicity. And so what we frequently do is we, in clinical practice, we start at uh, 1000 milligrams per meter squared. And if the patient just powers through that, then we can dose escalate up to 1250. Josh, is that something that you uh, sometimes do in your practice? Yeah, 100%. So the equivalent of the dosing you're saying, just to put numbers to it, is really what it's two and a half grams twice a day. Which is five tablets twice a day, which is a lot of tablets. And even my youngest Wellness patients who are super fit on, uh, you can get sometimes get capecitabine in the context of adjuvant uh, colorectal cancer, and they struggle. The other thing to bring up is that there is, I think it's 5% of the Caucasian population uh, DPYD deficient, which means they don't metabolize the... um, this essentially is a fluorouracil component. They don't metabolize the active component properly. And because of that, they end up having really bad toxicities. Um, another reason that I think potentially Caucasians don't handle it so well, but you can actually test for this. And a lot of places have started to do that in Australia. It's about a $200 out of pocket expense, um, especially patients who are going to need multiple cycles. It is worthwhile, um, potentially less worthwhile in the Asian communities. And I guess coming back, that's a really good point, Josh, because uh, if, if you're talking about a $200 out-of-pocket cost, the antidote actually does not exist in Australia. It has to be flown over from the UK at a much greater cost than $200. And it's important to say that people do die of DPD deficiency. Um, they get horrible mucositis, horrible diarrhea. They get cytopenias with neutrophils down to 0.0 and platelets in single digits it's awful awful toxicity um and we don't have the antidote readily available so it definitely is something worth keeping in mind that's it they essentially accumulate the the nucleotides and it's very bad um dpd for those who want to know what it stands for it's dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase um just in case you wanted to type that And Josh has been practicing that all week. I have, and it was great. (laughs) It was great. Well done. So week's worth of practice well spent. Uh, Coming back to CreateX, after the latest of our many sidetracks, the outcomes were disease-free survival, because obviously there's no pathological complete response here because the patients have definitively not had a PCR. That's how they had to get onto the trial. So disease-free survival. Secondary outcomes are overall survival and safety. In terms of the um, patient demographics, the median age was 48. Again, uh, reflecting the younger age of patients that uh, typically get breast cancer writ large, but also triple negative specifically. Uh, As a result, the majority uh, were premenopausal. most patients had a tumor size at diagnosis. So this is the original tumor before neoadjuvant chemotherapy of uh, two to five centimeters. Uh, 15% in the capecitabine group and 9% in the placebo group uh, had a chest wall or skin infiltration. And this is what I was mentioning before is that 68% of the patients in the capecitabine group and 67% of patients in the control group were estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive. So about a third of patients 
fall into the focus of today's episode, which is triple negative breast cancer. The majority of patients had sequential anthracycline and taxane, ACTaxol, which is obviously the bedrock of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And one thing I didn't mention um, with regards to the patients who were estrogen receptor or ER or PR positive is that in addition to the capecitabine, they would have gotten uh, uh, aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen uh, as required based on their disease biology. So coming to the results, and this is where the reason we're talking about creatics in this context, much like the brightness study, it was it set out to prove a point, and in doing so, in, in trying to prove one point, it proved a completely different point. So the disease-free survival in the intention to treat population, that is the whole population, is uh, 82.8% in the capecitabine group versus 73.9% in the uh, control group were alive and free of recurrence or a second cancer at three years. At five years, those rates were 74.1 and 67.6% respectively. So with capecitabine, at five years, three quarters of the patients are alive and free of recurrence at five years, which is good. In terms of the overall survival in the intention to treat population, 94% were alive at three years in the capecitabine group versus 88 or 89% in the control group. Uh, and at five years, the rates were 89 and 83% respectively. So in terms of absolute numbers, it is small, but obviously significant. Um, however, we have talked in previous episodes about a certain subgroup driving responses in an intention to treat analysis. And you can really see when we talk about the triple negative population, how that is the case here. So in terms of disease-free survival in the triple negative subgroup, this remember this is a third of patients, um, and each group had about 450 patients, so we're talking about 150 patients in each group. 70% uh, of patients in the capecitabine group compared to 56% of patients in the control group were um, disease-free uh, at three years. Um, with a hazard ratio of 0.58. And in terms of the overall survival, 78.8% versus 70% were alive at three years. So a hazard ratio of 0.52. So I believe that was five years, not three. Um, so you are seeing that there is a significantly greater magnitude of benefit. Patients are doing poorly if, if they have triple negative breast cancer, but the magnitude of benefit with the addition of capecitabine is much greater. Uh, in terms of the subgroups, and this is really where um, the authors were able to hone in on the triple negative uh, group being the driver of this benefit. So in terms of the uh, hazard ratios for um, triple negative versus the estrogen receptor positive groups, so actually separating out the two groups, the hazard ratio for the uh, ERPR negative group was 0.58 compared to the ERPR positive group is 0.81. And that hazard ratio in the ERPR positive group does cross one, so it crosses that line of equivalence. So it is theoretically possible that people um, actually do better on a control rather than capecitabine. In terms of safety, this is the, uh, this is the flip side of capecitabine, and I, I think that capecitabine has a probably mostly deserved bad rap. 
uh, amongst oncologists because it is, we've hinted at it before with DPD deficiency, but it is uh, responsible for significant toxicity even in patients who don't have DPD deficiency. Um, we mentioned the high dose and the high likelihood of needing a dose reduction. That's exactly what happened in this trial. So 159 patients were treated with six cycles of capecitabine and 283 with eight cycles. This is that uh, prolongation that I mentioned before, of whom 57.9% and 37.8% respectively completed capecitabine treatment with the planned dose. So that is less than 40% of patients who received eight cycles of treatment did not need a dose reduction or interruption, which is a huge number. I'm almost surprised that that number of people got through with that dose because that dose is massive, just massive. And I've seen some terrible toxicities at that dose. And most of my experience, we would rarely, I've seen it only a handful of times. I've prescribed this drug. I've lost count how many times that we would always err on the side of caution, start a little lower push it up rather than start of that dose and sort of see how you go. Yeah, absolutely. Specifically, the reasons for um, needing these uh, dose interruptions and dose reductions, the most common cause is hand foot syndrome. So that is a peeling and redness of the skin on the hands and the feet. Um, it can be exquisitely painful. I've heard patients describe it to me in terms of toxicity, specifically of the feet of like walking on glass. So it's that really... Uh, cutting, biting pain, and it really impedes a patient's ability to do their um, activities of daily living. Uh, so 11% of patients had grade three or four hand foot, or hand foot syndrome, 6.3% of patients had grade three or four neutropenia, and 2.9% of patients had grade three or four diarrhea. And that's probably representative uh, of the types of toxicities you get. But if you think about how bad grade three or four diarrhea or grade three or four hand foot syndrome is on a patient's quality of life, it is clear that this is a very toxic treatment and one that we should not use lightly. Mm -hmm. So bringing it all around, CreateX was a positive study. And it was probably positive looking at the broader context because it targeted a high risk group, patients who did not have a pathological complete response. There's, as we just mentioned, a significant proportion of patients required dose reduction or early cessation. And now we've got to come to the greater context because CreateX is not the only study to examine this idea of uh, adjuvant capecitabine in the triple negative space. There have been several other studies, and I will highlight the GICAM study, which was a German phase three study, which also looked at capecitabine post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the triple negative space. And this was a profoundly negative study uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.82. And again, it crosses that line of equivalence with a range of 0.63 to 1.06 and a p-value of 0.136. So... There are a couple of differences, and the authors, if you read the GICAM study, acknowledge these differences between GICAM and CreateX. The main one is that GICAM did not limit its cohort to patients with residual disease. So these were patients who had, in order to get on the trial, all you needed was triple negative breast cancer and had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and gone to surgery. Regardless of your degree of response, your... Um, 
you can get onto the trial, you can receive either capecitabine or observation. So that may have played into the uh, played into the lack of a significant benefit. The other point they mentioned is that the CREATEX population had a higher risk of relapse, and whether that is uh, because it was a predominantly Asian study, the authors in the GUICAM study posit that um, Asian patients with triple negative breast cancer are at inherently high risk of relapse. I don't know what other evidence there is to support that, but that's a, 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 a hypothesis that they state. But if you look at the numbers, it is undoubtedly true that patients in the CREATEX population had a higher risk of relapse with 56.1% of patients um, having a five-year um, DFS rate in the control arm of the CREATEX, that's the control arm, versus 76.8% in GICAM. Again, this could all be because the patients in CREATEX had residual disease and therefore were at higher risk. So putting all of this together, how do we sort of marry up these two seemingly inherently contradictory studies and use it to have put together a protocol for clinical practice. And the summary is this. If you have a triple negative patient, or a patient with triple negative breast cancer, I should say, who goes through the rigmarole, the six-month marathon of neoadjuvant treatment, gets through all the toxicities, gets through the surgery, and still has residual disease after all that then you consider using capecitabine. Obviously, there's a reason not to, you don't, but the standard of care would be to use capecitabine in the adjuvant setting. And you can uh, explain it to your patients as sort of a, a means to mop up any uh, remaining cancer cells. That's generally how I explain it in simple terms, but it aims to decrease the risk of recurrence, which as we know is high because they don't have a pathological complete response. If patients do have a pathological complete response, you fall back on GICAM, where it is unlikely that the addition of capecitabine will actually improve outcomes. And so you just go to observation. You don't need to do any adjuvant chemotherapy at all. You just go to observation. And so that is where these two studies have sort of settled. They're both quite old studies. They're now about 10 years down the track. Um, but that is how we have put together this contradictory body of evidence in the adjuvant setting. I think it's really nice though, Michael, that you can, you, you do have that framework because it's really difficult. I, I think first of all, it's fantastic that it was predominantly an Asian study because we need more diversity in our studies because everyone's biology Absolutely. is different and you know, you can't a, a five foot 10 Caucasian male does not reflect everyone in the community um, or female. Um, given that this is obviously a breast cancer trial. Um, but I think it's really, really important, but I think you're right. It is also, it's an insurance policy. It's good for the patient so they know that you're like, we're going to try and reduce that risk of recurrence. And even if it's a small benefit in the non-pathological complete responses, it's still something that I think people will be very happy to kind of engage with. But as you said, the summary is, don't do the dose. I think the dose that they, they did in the trial, I don't know who came up with that number, but that's too high or it's rough. It's very rough. And I think it is broadly in, in countries such as Australia where, you know, it's, I think it's fair to say the majority of our population are not Asian uh, or of Asian extraction. Um, I think it is fair to say that for the, most of your patients, um, you can always dose escalate. And look, if patients really tolerate, tolerate it very well, 
you can obviously in discussions with the patient you can always bump it up to that 1250. Obviously there's a high risk that you'll need to then drop it down again and there is a lot of sort of tweaking of doses in clinical practice with capecitabine. We see it all the time. But generally it's safer to start at a lower dose. Yep, that's it. I think we might summarize and let you guys enjoy your day or what, listen to another podcast episode that's also a great alternative to enjoying your day. Um, <laughs> but we repeat ourselves. Enjoy your day or listen to another episode. In one of the two. But They're basically in, the same. In summary, we have shown today that in triple negative breast cancer space, the use of neoadjuvant carboplatin and immunotherapy in the form of pembrolizumab definitely improves progression-free survival and event-free survival with, although overall survival has not been established, you can potentially use that as a surrogate marker. And the CREATE-X has really highlighted that in patients who have gone through treatment and they do not have a pathological complete response, they should definitely be given or have the discussion regarding capecitabine. But if they do, then it's really on to observation. And I just wanted to highlight one thing before Michael takes us out. A hearty congratulations to my co-convener and co-podcast extraordinaire dr michael fernando here has officially been admitted to the royal australian college of physicians he is a fully fledged oncologist and so now he is no longer allowed on this podcast no i'm kidding um my <laughs> i've been i've been exiled <laughs> no we were so very proud of you and i'm so happy uh that you got through all of those hoops over so so many years and there's no one more more deserving Josh, that is incredibly sweet and very uh, off-brand for you. There's There wasn't enough sarcasm there. Um, thank, thank you very much, and I look forward to you joining me on this, uh, shall we say, hilltop. Um, but thank, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, this has been Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, uh, and I believe next week we are going to stay in the early neoadjuvant phase, but we're going to look at rectal cancer, which is another uh, area which has uh, undergone fairly seismic shifts in the in the recent years. So until then, I'm Michael, he's Josh, and just remember, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> we'll see you next week. See you then.